This is a Founding Media podcast. This podcast episode is brought to you by our friends over at Traverse Legal. They have been super helpful for us to work with as we started Founding Austin and our other ventures. Traverse Legal has been changing the way law is practiced since its own founding in 2004 with a focus on utilizing technology to better deliver IP and business law services to founders, startups, and emerging growth companies. Traverse Legal's latest offering provides a monthly fixed fee, fractional general counsel offering to companies. Learn more by visiting TraverseLegal.com. Welcome to another episode of Masters and Founders. This week, we are sitting down with a true systems disruptor, Bradley Tusk. Bradley is the founder and CEO of Tusk Holdings, which includes Tusk Ventures, the world's first venture capital fund to work with and invest solely in high-growth startups facing political and regulatory challenges. His background includes serving as campaign manager for Mike Bloomberg, as communications director for Senator Charles Schumer, and as Uber's first political strategist. I'll let him tell you more about what interests him now in VC funding and how he sees politics changing in the future. So um, we were chatting a little bit about your path, and yeah. I want to really share this with the audience. A lot of times I feel like, and why I wanted to, one of the drivers of having someone that is has a VC company on the yeah. show is because there is this misconception at times. I have this great idea. I need to go get some VC funding. Sure. I need a million bucks. And yep. it's just, I hear this over and over and over. And I'm like, whoa, wait, there's multiple ways to skin yeah, this cat. You probably don't need a million bucks. Yeah. <laughs> and so I thought, well, wouldn't it be great to have someone uh, like yourself yeah. on the show sure. to kind of highlight the other side of that story? Yeah, So absolutely. why don't we start with this? Um, what gave you the idea to start a VC? Yeah, so I, I came at this in a really weird, unconventional way, which either will be inspiring for listeners who want to be VCs because they'll say you don't have to take the traditional route, or they'll say that's such a weird way that it doesn't apply to anyone but that one dude. Um, <laughs> but my background was actually in government and politics before yeah. I got into tech and before I got into venture. Um, I'd done stuff like I was Mike Bloomberg's campaign manager. Mm -hmm. I worked for him at City Hall in New York. I was the deputy governor of Illinois for four years. I worked on Capitol Hill as Chuck Schumer's communications director. Okay. And I started my first company, and you know, just a regular bootstrap company uh, based on whatever little bit of savings I had in 2010, consulting firm that runs big campaigns for big companies. So you're Walmart and you're trying to break into 10 different cities and you've got community opposition and union opposition or whatever it is. How do you make it happen, right? And those customers are the usual suspects, the Googles and Amazons and Whole Foods and Pepsis and Comcast of the world. Um, and then I'm sitting in a meeting in 2011, and a friend of mine called and said, hey, there's a guy with a small transportation startup. He's having some regulatory problems. Would you mind giving him some advice? Mm -hmm. um, I become Uber's first political advisor nice. that day. I get really lucky when Travis calls me back and says, listen, I can't afford your fee to take equity. I said, yes. I didn't know what I was saying yes to. I didn't understand what equity even meant. Right. But luckily it was Uber and luckily it was during the Series A. Nice. Um, 
and spent can I, uh, profanity out of here? Yeah, I yeah. spent the better part of the next five years just kicking the shit out of the taxi industry nice. all over the U.S. to make ride sharing legal. And the thing we basically figured out was that if we gave our customers the ability to advocate politically and say, I want the ability to have ride sharing, whether it's through email or Twitter or Instagram or wherever it was, um, they would do it. And they did. A couple million people over a period of years did. And that's why ride sharing is now legal nice. everywhere in the United States. Um, and what so I, you're the guy. I'm the guy, for better or for worse. <laughs> if people love you, people hate me, but I'm the guy. Um, and what I started seeing was this kind of vacuum where you have all these startups that are entering regulated industries, and they didn't understand government or politics or regulation mm. at all, right? Mm -hmm. They just assumed because they had really high IQs and they were really good engineers that somehow everything else would just be like, whoa, you went to Stanford. Just sure, we'll make the hotel rules whatever you want, you know? <laughs> um, and obviously, it doesn't work like that. Right. And so early on, before I even raised my first fund, I just started talking to other founders and saying, listen, you know, you're in this sector, uh, you know, here's who you're disrupting, here's your relative political power, I'll help you, and I'll do it for equity, not even knowing what that meant when I said right. it for equity, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, just thinking I was working pretty good with Uber. Yeah. Um, and for a long time, they just didn't take it seriously, right? They didn't think that they had to devote resources or time to it. But then, you know, over time, Uber and Airbnb and FanDuel and all of these startups started having kind of constant public political battles, and the notion of taking it seriously started to shift. Um, and so we had this idea is what if we could actually invest in startups where we know that okay, this company has the ability to be an incredibly valuable company, but there's some sort of gating political problem on the front end. Right. And either that gets solved and they become an incredibly successful company or it doesn't get solved and they don't succeed at all. If we think the company has incredible potential and we think that our skill set can solve the problem itself, why don't we invest, then go solve the problem, and then the valuation increases? Um, makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I started trying to raise a fund. Um, mm -hmm. And every LP says, oh, I want something totally differentiated. I want something totally new. So I'm walking in there and saying, well, here's how I'm going to use politics to get into all of these deals that are otherwise really, really hard to get into because yeah. I'm going to tell these companies that I won't solve their problem politically unless I'm given the opportunity to invest. Um, and, that, and enough of them will give me that opportunity to invest, and that's why this will be a successful fund. And then they would look at me and say, no, no, no. When I said differentiate, I meant like a different font in the deck, not, not you, right? <laughs> and it took me like two years to raise wow. the fund. I mean, I just was like – going around and around and around. And I finally got really lucky that um, we were working with a company called FanDuel, which is a, a fantasy sports startup. Mm -hmm. And one of the uh, people I pitched, the guy just loves sports betting, to be honest. I don't think it had much more than that. But I ha was sitting on all these investment rights in FanDuel, and that was really exciting to him. Mm -hmm. And he was willing to give us a chance. And then so we ended up raising about $37 million for Fund One, which is a, a pretty small venture capital fund. Um, but the thesis basically proved right, which is, Lots and lots of startups who realized, okay, I have this problem, came to us and said, can you fix it for me? I said, I absolutely can, but I need the ability to invest first. And at first, people were like, oh, who's this guy? Why do we want to give him investment rights? Right. But over time, two things happened. One is they saw us solving the problems for other startups. Right. And two, we started getting on the cap table of companies like Lemonade and FanDuel and Circle and Coinbase and Nexar and Bird. So people sort of say, oh, I think it looks pretty good if these guys are involved because it right. looks like we're taking this stuff seriously. So spent a lot of time really just trying to sell people on the notion that we would be a good investor and a good partner to have. A lot of time with startups, a lot of time with other VCs saying, listen, you want to invest in X, whatever it is. It's coming with this amount of regulatory risk. We're not a silver bullet, but if we're involved, the odds of the risk being mitigated are a lot higher 
than uh, if you're just trying to handle it on your own, right? Wow. So cut us into the deal. And then over time, it went from being an exception to the norm. Mm-hmm. Now people, I think, are generally like the idea of us being involved because it shows that they're taking this stuff seriously. Right. Um, and so we invested in 18 companies out of Fund One. We're in a bunch of really, really good stuff. Uh, we're in a, what's called the SEC calls a quiet period right now, which means I can't talk about our new fund, um, but they're, the reports that have been written on in the paper, I will say, are not inaccurate. Um, and, um, yeah, we're really excited about it. And I think, you know, we're still the only VC that works at this intersection of tech and politics. Um, but I think we're proving it out. And I think we've been in some really good stuff. And, you know, I just think about companies that are just functioning here in Austin. Uh, you know, I remember when I was trying to get Uber into Austin, it wasn't easy, right? Mm-hmm. And we got in, then Adler kicked us out, then I had to go to Abbott and get them overturned. Whereas with Bird... It was a very different perspective, and I don't think we totally know how to regulate ride sh- uh, scooters yet. And right. I think that there are times, even this weekend, that I was just you know and going up right. Congress and saying, "We're going to hit these people. This is terrifying." Exactly. Um, on the flip side, uh, the notion of the need to sort of take technologies that consumers want seriously, and okay. you, just because you're a regulator, you can't say like. I don't like it, no, right. right? That doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You have to say, if there's clearly all this market demand among my voters for this, there's some reason why. Mm-hmm. So how do I give people what they want, but do it in a way that is socially responsible? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we really try to do is figure out that right intersection of the two to help all of our different portfolio companies roll out around the US and then all over the world. Wow, that's incredible. I really love that you took what was your passion and your knowledge in, in politics yeah. and your roadmap and then applied it to something completely new and built something completely new. And it reminds me, and yeah, I, as you were talking about, you know, founders and how smart they are. And yes, I've got lots of respect for a lot of founders, but a lot of times they, they have this notion is if I build it, they will come. Right. And doesn't it's, like doesn't that, I mean, they won't no. spend money marketing. They won't spend money in all the areas they need to spend because they think the product's so good. It's just everybody's going to know about it. Yeah. But then like just that. like in this industry, you can build it, but then you've got not only marketing, but you also have politics you got to deal with. Yeah, you got to deal with all kinds of things, and you have to prepare to do that. Um, just being a great engineer or a great coder. Look, if you're a great engineer, lots of people hire you and pay you lots of money to do your thing. Mm-hmm. But if you are an entrepreneur and you're trying to create a product, you have to, A, convince people that they need this product or service in the first place. You have to build a market for it. You have to build proof around it. You have to be able to sort of deal with whatever regulations come in that particular industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, there's lots and lots of different pieces to it beyond just having a great piece of software. Yeah. And, you know, I think the really successful entrepreneurs understand that. Yeah, for sure. That's amazing. Well, back to our our uh, listeners and what I feel like a lot of them get out of this is, is you know, you don't just – get an idea, put it on paper, and say, I've got to go get some VC funding. Right. I mean, there's multiple, multiple, multiple ways to to build this, to build businesses. Yeah. So um, what kind of stories have you heard yeah, or seen? Yeah, I mean, a lot. So let, let me start off with sort of two different things that I was kind of hoping to get across here, knowing that that was sort of what the listeners are, are interested in. Yeah. The, the first is not every company needs to be a venture-backed startup. Right. Um, because keep in mind, when someone like me invests in your company, we're giving you money, but I'm taking a chunk of the company in return. Mm-hmm. And then every time you raise more money, you're giving away more and more and more of your equity. Yeah. So you could have a point. Like the, the guys that founded Lyft, uh, Logan Green and John Zimmer, I read that they still they own seven percent of the company. Which on one hand, that a twenty something billion dollar valuation is a lot of money. On the other hand, you would think when you told them they were starting that okay, now by the time's all said and done, you're going to th- say they should own three percent. Like 
they'd be like, well, how did I lose all my control of my company? And the, and the answer is because when VCs give you money, they take equity and they take control and return. Yeah. That's how the model works. So um, one is people sort of assume that because it's sort of cool that like, oh, I should get VC money. But one, it's not necessarily the best deal for you economically. Right. Two, you have to think about is there a reason why my company, if it's scale, is a billion-dollar company because most companies are not by definition. You know, they're called unicorn for a reason. They're pretty yeah. rare, and you can have an amazing business that makes you really wealthy personally, and you make millions of dollars a year just by bootstrapping and building it the way that most people build companies, which is you know you. you put your savings into it, you sacrifice, you struggle, you work hard, you grow, and you keep reinvesting in the company over and over and over again, and you keep getting bigger. That's how most really successful businesses are built. Mm -hmm. um, the stuff on venture tends to be really the ones that work are this idea that is incredibly scalable or this idea whether the deep tech thing. So it could be you know, blockchain or AI or machine learning or autonomous vehicles where mm -hmm. You know, you have to raise money because you need tens of millions or ultimately hundreds of millions of dollars for research and development. That makes sense. Um, but I think the first thing to do when you're thinking about, you know, I'm starting a company, how do I fund it, is do I need VC money? Do I want VC money? And am I a good fit for VC? And if the answer isn't yes to all those things, then don't waste your time on it, right? Yeah. Because even getting in the door to pitch a VC can be really hard, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we get – I'd always pride myself being the kind of person that if you emailed me, I wrote you back. Um, even just to be polite, right? Mm -hmm. And in every job I'd ever had, even when I was, you know, deputy governor, kind of running the state of Illinois, I was really good about that. And that all changed when I became a venture capitalist because the amount of unsolicited inbound from people pitching their companies to me is so overwhelming. I, I can't write back. When I do write back, I may write back with yeah. questions or this, that. And you end up, at some point, you end up having to not respond anyway, so you feel bad. So, um, but the point is, it's hard to get on the radar screen. Right of a venture capitalist, and you know we're good enough at what we do that even if we make the wrong choices, we at least understand, here's what we're looking for, mm -hmm. right? And if you don't meet those initial criteria, instead of spending that time building your company, building the brand, building the service, building the team, you know, you're just trying to pitch to VCs, that's really a pretty inefficient use of it's your time. It's a full-time job, too. Yeah, absolutely. So I think people should, A, be wary of that, and then B, so here are the kinds of things that I look for when we invest, sure. which maybe give people a sense of at least what VCs are looking for. So yeah. we invest um, at pretty early stage. So seed and Series A is our typical entry point. Before you jump into that, yeah. let's explain seed, Series sure. A, Series B, because I think the, I think the audience gets a better understanding of that, then we can jump into yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. So for companies that are VC-backed, you know, there's lots of different stages. The mm -hmm. very beginning would be what's called pre-seed, and that's usually your friends and your family kicking in money, you're maxing out your credit cards, you're doing whatever you can to just kind of establish proof of concept. And in that case, you still own the vast majority of the company. Right. Um, then you hit the seed round, which is like, okay, there's something here and I either need cash to build out the technology or... My tech is already here, but I need cash now. Market this product and get people aware of it. And you know, typical seed round today, and we're in we're in a world of pretty inflated valuation. So I don't know that it's going to stay at this level. Mm -hmm. But typically now, people are raising you know maybe two to four, two to five million dollars for a seed round, uh, and the company's valued at let's say somewhere between ten and fifteen million dollars typically. Um, at that point, now you're starting to give up ownership in the company, mm -hmm. control, board seats to people like us. Um, then the next one will be Series A, where you say, okay, I've got a real product, I've got a real service, I've demonstrated market fit, now I want to start scaling. I want to start launching in other markets. Let's say you started in Austin, you say, I'm now I'm ready to launch this thing in Chicago, LA, and New York, or whatever it is, I need more capital. Mm -hmm. um, 
And then if Series A, effectively, it'll be, you know, these days, maybe you're raising five to $10 million in the valuation, somewhere between, say, 20 and $40 million. And then it goes on. So a company like Uber right now is, I don't know, Series Q or whatever number letter, or I think it's like probably like H or I okay. or something, you know, because, you know, a company like Uber has raised billions and billions and billions of dollars. This has been going on for a long time. But typically speaking, any company that goes all the way from pre-seed through to, say, an IPO, you know, there's probably eight rounds, 10 rounds before that happens. And okay. you have different types of investors coming at different points in the process. Um, a lot more startups that have a successful exit aren't going public. They're selling to a bigger company and saying, okay, I've developed this really cool product. Um, you know, Procter & Gamble wants to buy it for $100 million right. or whatever it is. And you're selling somewhere along the continuum. Right. So for us, we focus on seed and Series A for a few reasons. Okay. One is for me, it's really fun to help build companies. Mm -hmm. So to me, the earlier I'm involved, the more that we're really helping create, you know, what's the culture of this place? What's the zeitgeist? What's the product roadmap? You know, how do we talk about this? How do we brand it? How do, in my world specifically, how do we deal with the regulatory components mm -hmm. of it? Um, you know, whereas if you're investing in, let's say, an Uber or an Airbnb or WeWork right now, and they're worth tens of billions of dollars, it's the same thing as buying stock in a stock market, right? right? right. You have no impact on the company. Okay. Even, even if you're putting in a billion dollars at that point, you still don't really have all that much impact. So to me, the interesting, fun thing is building companies, right? Okay. If it's purely just like, Invest, like investing for the sake of investing, I'm, there are people who love that. I'm not one of them, right. right? I'm interested in finding companies where I think there's an amazing idea and an amazing team. And with our help and some of our money, it can become a tremendous company, an Uber, a Bird, a Coinbase, a FanDuel, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, but all of that for me happens on the early side where both A, it's more fun, and B, earlier you get in, the more risk, the more reward. Right. You know, we're trying to make a, a 10X on every single deal. So if we're investing $2 million in a company, our hope is that we'll get back $20 million. Now, mm -hmm. most of the time we don't. The way VC math works right. is, you know, around a third of your companies go to zero. Around a third, you kind of get back what you put in, and then you make your real money on the other third. Almost right? like music labels back in the day. Totally. Same, same concept. Yeah. I think publishers of all kinds are probably like mm -hmm. that. I imagine movie studios are mm -hmm. like that. You know, all kinds of things like that. So, you know, it's funny. This is a little bit of a tangent now, but something when a really bad movie comes out, I'll say, like, wasn't it obvious? Like, how did they not know this is such a bad movie? Why did they release it? But then I invest in startups that don't succeed, and it clearly made sense to me at the time. Yeah. You know, we have a whole process for our investment committee. It's not like we just randomly throw darts right. at the dartboard. Right. So obviously someone at Universal Studios, whatever it is, thought it was a good enough idea that it got mm -hmm. far down the road enough that they made this movie, and then it was a dud. Right. Um, so same thing is true in venture. So out of our first fund, we typically invested about a million dollars per company at Series A, uh, our new funds can be bigger, so the, the numbers will be bigger, but we're staying in the same range of seed and Series A. Um, and then, you know, investors get something called pro rata, which means I have the right to keep investing with each successive round. And then what tends to happen is if you become a really, really successful company, you hit a point where it doesn't make sense for me to keep investing because the cost is so high that it's not part of my strategy anymore, right? right? So like 20% of my fund is in Bird mm -hmm. um, because we got into Bird really, really early when it was a $50 million valuation at the Series A. And then we turned around eight months later and it was a $2 billion valuation at the Series C, wow. um, which was amazing. But as Bird keeps raising money, the reality is I, I can't afford to keep putting it in because right. you know, my fund one's only $37 million. I've already got... 20% of the, a fifth of that fund in Bird, right. um, I can't keep dedicating more money. Um, and so that's when other types of investors, private equity and things like that tend to come in the mix and they say, okay, um, we can write much bigger checks and we don't need to try to make 
10x on a deal, we're happy to try to make 2x on a deal. Um, and so that's when they come into the equation. So different people come in at different times. But I think when you're looking for a VC and when you're thinking about this process, I think the people who are listening to this are probably wondering, how does this whole thing work and mm-hmm. is it right for me or not? Right. So it's, it's a few things. One, is your company really a scalable tech company or is it just a good business idea, right? Because right. 99.9% of good business ideas don't necessarily mean scaling something where you're going to have scooters in 87 cities in, in the span of a year or whatever we did at Burn, right. Right? right? That's one. Two, economically, do I need to do it this way? Because there's a good chance you will ultimately make less money that way than if you bootstrap it yourself. Um, assuming that's all true, is there a reason why venture capitalists would be attracted to me. Why would what would they want about me? Who do I know that knows a VC that can give me a warm introduction? Because you know the way I look at a startup when a VC or a founder that I respect says, "Hey, take a look at this thing," is very different than if some someone sends me email. an email. Right? If I get an unsolicited email, I basically just delete it because you're like five hundred a day. I'm sure. Yeah, I can't. I, right? There's yeah. just nothing else I can do with it. Um, if the answers are yes to all of those things, you know, then you can really start thinking about okay. Um, what kind of VCs do I want to work with, right? So for us specifically, people come to us because they know they're going to have political and regulatory problems and they know that they want our expertise. There are other VCs that are really great with marketing or branding. There are people who are great at helping you find engineers and recruit talent. Um, You know, different VCs offer different things. And I would say all things being equal, if all someone has to offer you is money, um, you know, I'd be if you really need the money, that's one thing. But you know, ideally, you want someone who can give you money plus something else, and that's when that becomes a really attractive VC. Mm-hmm. Uh, like for example, there's a, a VC here in Austin called Mark VC. Uh, Adam Zeppelin runs it, and one of the things I think is is we love working with them is that Adam is able to really just get engaged in the guts of the company and help with operations, help with product market fit. I mean, all these things are different than what what we do, where we're coming at it more from the media and regulatory side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's engaged, right? And that's what you'd want. I think you don't want passive investors. Right, for sure. One of the things that I um, was reading about you is is because your focus is in the political environment, your money is more patient, is what I, what I read. Yeah. And I would think it'd have to be because obviously you don't know what you're getting into when it, with some of these companies. Yeah, like, for sure. I mean, we, we invest in a company, especially when we're investing, say, at Seed, we assume that we're not going to see anything back for seven to 10 years, okay. right? And that's just our working assumption. If on occasion something happens sooner and it's good, great. Mm-hmm. And on occasion they're going to go bankrupt by four, seven, ten years also, by the way. You know, it's yeah. going to even have both kinds of outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, one of the things about VC is, especially if you're thinking of becoming a venture capital investor or investing in a venture capital fund, it's slow. Tech moves really fast. The companies move fast. But from when you first start deploying capital to when you see something back, it's a really long period of time and you have to have the ability – to wait. And one of the reasons that it's hard to raise venture capital, especially it was for me in the beginning, is people who are investing in our funds know that they're not going to see anything for seven years or whatever it is, which means they've got to be reasonably confident in me that they're willing to deploy this capital on the front end and wait a really long time to see anything back. Now, what they're hoping for is that when they do get their money back, they'll get three or four or five times what they put in. And that's sort of the math on venture capital. Um, but there's a lot of risk to that too. Very cool. Very cool. You have some new things you're working on. I was reading. Yeah. Uh, you want, let's talk about some of the new yeah, things. Yeah, I would love to. So I, I, the reason I'm here in Austin yeah. uh, is for, 
like I guess everyone in the last few weeks, I came for South by. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was lucky that they invited me to come speak about a project I'm working on out of my foundation. So I mentioned earlier that when I started with Uber, I took my fee in equity. Um, that really worked out. So nice. now I have a family foundation because I have more money than I ever. Nice. I didn't grow up rich and, you know, worked in right. government politics. I didn't have a lot of money. So, you know, I have more than I need at this point. Exactly. So it's like, well, okay, how could I use it productively? And the thing to me that where I thought I had the greatest ability to impact the world at this intersection of tech and politics where the thing that I learned in government, uh, and it's kind of a sad fact, but 99.9% of politicians are desperately self-loathing and secure people that can't live without the validation of holding office. It's like asking them to not have the attention and credibility that comes with being a politician. It's like asking you or me or any of the listeners to just go without oxygen. They can't, right. they can't do it. Which means when you think about the decisions they're going to make while in office, almost 100% of those decisions are driven solely by electoral inputs and nothing else. So there are exceptions. I worked for Mike Bloomberg. He was definitely different. Um, but by and large, if you want to know why someone's going to do something when it, on a policy issue, on a legislative vote, whatever it is, you've got to go back and say, of the few people who actually vote in these people's primary, the people who would actually impact their next election, what do they want? Because that's really all it comes down to. Mm-hmm. So if you want to change the policy outputs, you've got to change the political inputs. And because we live in a world where, A, turnout is so incredibly low, and B, uh, you know, we have a voting system that was built for an agrarian society 250 years ago. We vote on Tuesdays because that's what was good for the farmers in the 1700s, wow. right? Yeah. Um, and because of gerrymandering, the vast majority of primaries really serve as effectively the general election because the district is drawn in a way that it's not going to be competitive uh, either, you know, for Republicans or Democrats, depending on where you are. For all of that, most U.S. elections are determined in, the, in primaries. And average primary turnout is about 12%. So... If you take gun control as just an issue, and I know probably since at least within Texas, there are people in Austin who probably agree with me on this and people in the rest of Texas who probably hate this. But let's assume that you think an assault weapon ban is a good idea. I think it's a good idea. Mm -hmm. You're a Republican congressman from Florida. Um, You probably know in your head that people walk around your district with an AK-47, not good. But turn out in your primary is 12 percent. The district is gerrymandered, so the primary is the general election. NRA members make up half of that 12 percent. You're never going to vote for it because being in office is so important to you, you're not going to risk your future just because of that issue. But now imagine a world where turnout is 70%. Then all of a sudden the view of the majority in the mainstream is what you're following, right? Yeah. And that could be on guns or climate or healthcare or immigration or the economy on anything, right? And you know, right now the way it works is groups on the left and the right tend to exploit low turnout primaries to exert a lot of power. So teachers unions on the left, business groups on the right um, – tend to be able to disproportionately impact what happens um, because they know, okay, if turnout's going to be 32,000 votes in this election, with my money and with my membership, I can move a good chunk of those votes and ask get politicians to do what I want to do. Mm-hmm. What I learned with Uber, and we were talking earlier about how do you mobilize customers, is the same people who never vote in a primary, when we gave them something they cared about, which was there's this thing called ride sharing. It can exist or not exist. Uh, that's going to be determined by the politicians. You can weigh in. And we made it easy. So from the app, press this button. You can tweet at your city council member. Or you can email your state senator. You can post something on your state rep's Instagram page. Or whatever, however you're looking at it, people did it, right? So it wasn't that people won't participate. They won't participate if it's wildly inconvenient, which is how the system currently works. Mm-hmm. So those two things said to me, if we want different policy outputs, which create different, different political inputs, if we give people the tool to engage in elections differently, they'll actually do it. Right. So that's how do you do it safely, and that's where blockchain came in. Mm-hmm. And because blockchain effectively is really just plumbing that transmits data from point A to point B in a safer manner, 
We now have a way to transmit votes uh, over the internet, over the blockchain, that's safer than the way we conduct elections now. So all three of those things came together for me in an initiative where we're now trying to create a world where everyone can vote in elections on their phone over the blockchain. So we started last year in West Virginia uh, working with deployed military. So the Secretary of State of West Virginia, who's, you know, conservative Republican, not really my politics at all, but he had been in the military and his kids were in the military. And he found it very frustrating that you're risking your life to protect our right to vote and you mail in your ballot from Kandahar and by the time it shows up at the election office, it's some election's so long over and they throw in the trash. Mm. Um, He was looking for a solution to that problem. We were able to put together the tech piece, the political piece. Um, we paid for the costs for West Virginia to administer the election out of our foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were the, they became the first jurisdiction ever to offer mobile voting over the blockchain uh, to their constituents. Uh, so last week we announced that the city of Denver is doing it in their municipal elections this May. Same thing for deployed military. And my hope was over the next couple of years I can keep working with more and more jurisdictions to try it out with different populations. So you could see how it's really useful for the blind or the deaf. If you live in a really rural area and you have to drive 50 miles to vote, right. if you're on a Native American uh, reservation or maybe you're a college student abroad or whatever it is, start with those groups and then eventually work our way into the middle where we have a world where everyone can vote. And, you know, obviously i do not naive enough or stupid enough to think that I can take on the NRA and the teachers unions and everyone else. Right. But I, my daughter's 12. And I look at it and say, when she's 18, uh, if I've created a world where we've proven over and over and over again that this thing is safe and this thing works, she's going to demand the ability to use it, right? And right. we've seen what happened when young people especially demand something in mm-hmm. force. It eventually happens. I mean, the thing that I've learned more in tech than anything else is once you let the genie out of the bottle, you can't put it back in, right? right? You mm-hmm. can suppress a particular startup, a market. Austin managed to get Uber out for nine months or however long we were gone for. But at the end of the day, if it's a really good idea that people want to do, it's going to survive. Right. And so what I'm really trying to do right now is just let the genie out of the bottle. Nice. Very cool. That's, yeah, that's amazing. I've, I've often wondered why that doesn't exist. It's like this is so antiquated. Right. As, as with many things. Right? Yeah, You're for like, sure. Why isn't this, why isn't this fixed already? Yeah. Why, why? And, you know, that's, I mean, part, part of it is that the technolo- blockchain really makes technology much easier. Right. And that's why I was here for the interactive part of South by at, on, to, on a blockchain panel talking about mobile voting specifically. But part of it also is that the people who are in power are not interested in making it easier for themselves to lose power, right? right. And in fairness, you know, I'm, I'm an independent. I've, I've spent enough time in politics now that I don't believe in either party at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, this is really true on both sides of the aisle, which is people who have worked hard to gain power want to stay in power, which means – even if they think it's overall good for society for more people to vote, if it's not good for their next election, they're There's not going to support there. it. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, you know, I'm just trying to ultimately get enough enough belief, enough proof of concept out there that one day we can overwhelm them. Incredible. I really love what you're working Thank on. Thank you. Yeah, we're Plus working all on. the other things you're doing. I mean, just helping companies just kind of navigate this political landscape. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to, to us, and it's, you know, they all fits together. You mentioned earlier sort of the way that we had taken our experience in politics and applied it to venture. That's really almost, you know, I own a bunch of different kinds of companies, not just in, in technology. Everything that we do effectively is the application of what I learned in politics in the first 20 years of my career into something else. So, for example, uh, I wrote a book uh, last fall about startups and politics, and we just sold it to, we haven't announced a deal yet, but to a famous TV network. Uh, we're turning to a fictional half-an-hour TV show that I'm now helping to write. Nice. Um, but again, it's Hollywood, but it's you know using that experience I had in politics. Mm-hmm. Or I own a digital archive company where we build these really bespoke high-end archives for foundations and companies and individuals. But it was all based on, initially we did it for Mike Bloomberg, where when he was leaving the mayor's office in New York City, 
he had accumulated 12 years worth of stuff and mm -hmm. we spent a whole year collecting about 3 million videos, speeches, memos, transcripts, letters, photos, you name it. Wow. Curated it down to about 170,000 assets that we thought he would really want to hang on to. Mm -hmm. Digitized everything, meta-tagged everything, built a platform, uh, worked with StoryCorps to do an oral history of the administration and it became like Google for Mike. Nice. Uh, and so now we, we build these really high-end archives for people, but again, came out of politics. So everything we do, in fact, the other thing we do out of my foundation, Touch Philanthropies, it's hunger, so uh, we fund and run campaigns around the U.S. on an issue called Breakfast After the Bell. So not shockingly, the same kids that don't get breakfast at home tend to not get to school early for the free breakfast either. So every study shows that if you hand it out during homeroom, A, the uptake is much greater, B, the stigma goes away because it's available to anyone, right? It doesn't right. matter what your income is. If you want food, you can have it. If you don't want it, you don't have to have it. Right. Um, so we've now run bills in eight different states to create breakfast after the bell. We've passed them in all eight. So about three million more kids have access now. School breakfast, we've got campaigns going right now in Oregon, Maine, Minnesota, and Massachusetts. Uh, and my hope is that every year, you know, we can just fund and run four or five more campaigns. But again, it's it's not that the food advocates didn't know all of this before. It's that their expertise is in food policy. And they tend to be really nice people. And politics is a rough business, right? Yes. <laughs> and the reality is sometimes, you know, the way we win these campaigns, we go in there and we pick some asshole who's being you know, against it and we find dirt on them on some other topic entirely. And I say, you could be for the hunger bill or I could put this out in the press. You decide, Ooh. right? And <laughs> it's sort of using political tactics yeah. uh, to get a good thing done. Right. And so really almost everything we do, and I think this is maybe not a bad lesson for the listeners, which is you probably have a core passion or skill set, right? Mm -hmm. The more that that's engaged in anything you're doing, the more you're going to enjoy it, the better you're going to yeah. be at it, the more successful you're going to be. Mm -hmm. We were just talking about that. So if, you're, if you build a business just for the money, it, that steam is going to run out quickly. Yeah, for sure. You've, you've got to, over 150 interviews I've done over the last three or four years, um, the successful, successful founders I've, I've spoken to, which is the majority of them, yeah. um, I, you know, say, look, any, actually, I was just talking to Lewis Black, who's one of the founders of South by Southwest. Yeah. He was one of our last uh, interviews. Um, and he said, anytime I did anything for money, I failed. Yep. I did it for passion, didn't know what I was doing, didn't have a money expectation at all. Wildly successful. To totally agree with that. And I would say two things. One is, um, especially if you're starting a company, right? It is, I mean, you know this because you've created things. It, it's so hard and it's so much work that if you're not passionate about it, it's just, it's not going to succeed. You're not going to be able to recruit talent. You're not going to be able to retain them. You're not going to be able to raise in whatever form, even if it's just convincing a bank to give you a loan, right. sell products. So you've got to be passionate about it because you're talking about like, you know, for the first year or two, it's like 100 hours a week, right? right. It's all consuming. Yeah. Um, the other thing is this, you know, for, for some of the younger people listening to this, I'm 45 now, but mm -hmm. I spent my 20s and a good chunk of my 30s just basically saying to myself, as long as I have a job where I can pay the rent, I don't need to make another money. What I need to do is build as many skills and experiences and relationships as I can. And then there will come a day where I'd like to make money, and I will figure out how to monetize all of that in some kind of unique way. But I didn't really worry about it until I was 35, 36, until I had kids. Um, and just up until then, was just really focused on just trying to learn as much as I possibly could. And then that's pretty worked out, which is when the time came, I was able to say, okay, I've had these experiences of running a state, running a mayoral campaign. I understood finance. I understood I was a lawyer. I understood politics. I understood press. And I put it together in a way that made sense for me. But, you know, oftentimes, you know, people will come in their 20s or 30s and ask me for advice. And it's like that that passion piece of the, the Lewis Blackburn is even more important because yeah. just do stuff you like, learn, build things, see how they work. Don't worry about getting rich. It was so insightful for you to have that mental process way back in the day. I, I just 
can't even imagine being 20 thinking, I'm just going to yeah. like, take it easy until I'm 35. Right. Just, like, and I'm not sure I fully even, like, yeah. in retrospect, I could articulate it. Yeah. And look, when I started my first company, it was completely designed for, for my skill set and interests. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, also government pays okay, right? So it yeah. wasn't like we were living fine. It's, yeah. it's funny how you make more money, you get very good at spending it, right? <laughs> yeah. But when I didn't have it, I, I didn't feel deprived. I That's felt right. okay. You yeah. know, I, I was still able to put food on the table. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and to, to me, you know, I think there's probably a lot of people listening to this podcast who are young and say, you know, if I can – have a big successful tech startup and I can be really rich and then I'll be happy. And like, you know, the cliche happens to be true, right? Like, is it easier in life to have more money than us? Absolutely. Anyone tells you that's, that's not true is lying. Mm-hmm. But is it the determinative factor of anything? No. no. If you hate what you do, you're still going to be unhappy. Right. And if you love what you do, you're going to enjoy it a lot more. Part of this, I think, is FOMO, right? It's like the same thing as like, I want to have a unicorn. It's like, right. and, and it's like, oh, this person sold this company in two years and made $200 million, and he's like 28. Yeah, but so many more companies are built a lot later in life. Yeah, well, first of all, so for every 28-year-old that did that, there's literally probably 100,000 that tried and failed, which is okay, yeah. but you just have to understand the odds. Yeah. Second, you know, people look at the ultimate, say, sale price with the company or the IPO amount. That's not what the person who created the company Made right. so if the twenty-eight-year-old started the company when he was twenty-two mm-hmm. and raised money for six years, um, by the time he sold two hundred million dollars, that's a ton of money. But maybe he made twenty-five, thirty, forty million dollars—more money than anyone ever could need. Right. But it's not two hundred million dollars. Right. Right. So even a sense of even the people who really, really, really make it yeah. are not making nearly as much money as you think. Yeah. Well, but I like the message you said, which is just like just. Follow your passion, build your skills, figure out what, what your passions are. At 20, do you really even know what your passions are? No. You still got so much of life ahead of you. Yeah. Go figure that out and then know and trust the journey that at some point it'll all come together. For sure. And also I think that the other piece is just resilience, right? So mm-hmm. one thing that I know that I worry about a little bit now is you, you have these so oftentimes these really, really smart kids that go to these incredible schools. Um and they know how to study for a task. They know how to sort of impress someone on a resume. But, you know, life is a lot about getting knocked down and getting back up again and failing and figuring out another approach and succeeding. And I think one of the most important things you can really build is resilience. I actually have in my office now a no Ivy League millennial hiring policy. If you're a millennial and you went to an Ivy League school, we will not hire you. Wow. Because my view is I'm not curing cancer, right? So, like, the extra five IQ points one way or other doesn't really make that much of a difference to what I'm doing. (laughs) But I like people who are really hungry and have had to work for it and have been knocked down and Mm -hmm. want to get back up. And if they need to be patted on the head all day, that's a really bad use of my time and my team's time. And so I think also trying to build that resilience, it's okay to fail. It's okay to try things that don't work out. If you're only willing to do things that have no risk, um, you might not fail, but you're never Mm -hmm. going to accomplish anything in the first place. Um, And so, you know, again, to the extent that people are listening to who are a little younger, you know, Really just being out, A, doing what, trying to do what you love and what you're passionate about, but B, also not being terrified of failure. You know, those are the personality traits that ultimately lead to those 28-year-olds selling companies for $200 million, right? It's not because they checked every box and they had a degree from the Wharton School of Business right. and everything else. There are people like, you know, if you want to do that, go try to work at Goldman Sachs, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but if you want to be in tech and be an entrepreneur – the path for success is resilience, individualism, passion, and ideas, Mm -hmm. right? And if you have those things, then your odds are pretty good. Let's tell our listeners, I know that obviously um, 
you can get in flooded with emails. But yeah. where do you, where where would you like them to to look? I mean, there's some things in your philanthropy that yeah, work for sure. Funded. I mean, so a couple things. So one is um, if you go just to the the tuskholdings.com website. Mm-hmm. It's a link to everything else that we're doing. So, uh, you know, for example, I would love people to check out mobilevoting.org. We just launched that last mm-hmm. week. It's our website around mobile voting. Uh, there's a site called firewall.media that has all of the content. So I also have a podcast, not nearly as good as yours, but I, I have one and I interview tech founders and VCs and people like that. Um, I write a lot of columns for publications like Quartz and CNN and CNBC, and those are on there. Um, so, you know, would love people to check out the content we're creating. And then, yeah, if you go to touchventures.com, you'll see everything we're investing in and working on, test strategy, you'll see the kind of campaigns we're running. So, um, yeah, please please check us out uh, because we're doing lots of good things. And every one of those sites has a way to contact us on there. Um, and, you know, especially if, if what you're looking for is not so much that you think you have the next billion-dollar idea and you're trying to get me, get me to give you money for it, but it's, you know, when people reach out for just career advice and they say, here's who I am, here's what I'm trying to do, you know, I try to help them whenever I can. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show. Hey, thanks it's, for having it's me. It's been it's been incredible learning your path, and I hope that our audience, I know their audience, will really enjoy the show as well. Cool. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Wow, I could have kept talking to him for hours. Thank you, Bradley, for sharing your story and giving us a quick glimpse of what our futures may look like. The Masters and Founders team includes me, Dan Dillard, producer Mariah Gossett, and audio engineer Jake Wallace. Thank you, everyone, at Foundry Media for your support. To see this video interview and other Foundry Media podcast, make sure that you subscribe to our YouTube channel. A link is in the show notes. Thank you for listening.